Welcome to episode 19 of the Kevin Doherty podcast. My guest today is Patrick Noonan. Pa has been a guest on the podcast before, and today we chatted about a bunch of stuff, including living in Sicily, hiking Ireland coast to coast, the art of video editing, adopting a mountain, philosophy, finding meaning in dreams, lucid dreaming, and free speech. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you helped spread the word by recommending it to a friend or sharing it on your Instagram stories and tagging me at the Kevin Doherty podcast. Thanks for listening. Patrick Noonan, fantastic to see you again. How are you getting on, buddy? All good, all good. How are you doing? All good, man. Whereabouts in the world are you now? Yeah, so I'm in Palermo in Sicily, living a good life, you know. Fucking balling. What made you choose uh, Palermo? The last time we were talking, you were on about uh, Tbilisi in Georgia. Yeah, it's, uh, that was one back in June, I think it was, maybe May, June, I can't remember exactly. Uh, so yeah, obviously, COVID situation is changing all over the place. So Georgia closed their borders, maybe a month or so after that. Uh, so I couldn't go there. Uh, then, so I was, I was hiking around, and then after that, I was considered going to Budapest in Hungary. But uh, literally the day I booked all that stuff, uh, like the flights and the Airbnb, literally within an hour of doing that, they, they shut their borders. I think it was like September 1st, like that. Um, so I, I think we're funded for that, so that was fine. And I was looking at, okay, where can I go now? Because uh, I don't want to stay in Dublin, essentially. Um, and so at the time, Italy was on Ireland's green list. And Italy had no quarantine upon arrival. Uh, and so I figured, look at places in Italy where I could stay and then settled on Palermo in Sicily. There's like direct flight from Dublin to Palermo. Uh, I didn't want to bother having to switch in the airport, you know, connecting in the airport. And I figured, yeah, Sicily sounds cool. Why not check it out? That's class, man. Um, do you know any basic Italian or is their level of English decent enough down there that you can get by day to day? I speak no Italian. Uh, and really yeah, you don't really most places you don't need the language that much you know like if you, if you unless you're if you're just going to shopping in a restaurant you can just get by with almost just pointing and being a fucking idiot and going oh what this and if they don't uh, understand so, talk louder <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly no it's like they they know instantly okay this guy doesn't speak Italian like you know what I mean so it's kind of just and they're Palermo Sicily in general is like super t- uh, touristy do you know what I mean like not touristy, but it's like they're well used to tourists. You know what I mean? All the restaurants, that kind of stuff, uh, and so they're they're used to it. Um, so yeah, I don't speak Italian. I've got Duolingo going, learning a little bit here and there. But I mean, again, I'm only going to be here for a couple of months. Maybe I don't know. I could be here. Who knows? I'm going to be here. But uh, I'm not planning on living here indefinitely. So I'm not going to invest all that time learning uh, Italian. Do you know what I mean? And as an area, as a city, like. What's Palermo like compared to Dublin? Like, are, are a lot of things back open for business? Is there much to do there culturally? Uh, so it's kind of like Dublin was maybe in August. Or Ireland in August, because I mean, you, can, you can travel anywhere in Italy once you're in Italy. Uh, everywhere, you know, you go inside anywhere, you have to wear a mask, that kind of stuff. Uh, you see a lot of people wearing masks even on the street. Um, 
just outside even. But I mean, uh, because it's, it's sunny all the time, you can pretty much just, all the restaurants are set up to have to sit outside, you know what I mean? Uh, and so they're, they're well used to that. And so it's kind of, you, you want to go to a restaurant, uh, you can just sit outside and get food as normal almost. I have to say, what you're doing this year, I respect so much because so many people I've talked to this year, they're just so down about it. They feel that there's absolutely no options. Whereas at the moment, at the end of the year, 2020, the fucking most unexpected pandemic that's hit us in a century, you're fucking sunning it up, eating Italian cuisine in Italy. And you're just after finishing a coast to coast hike from Dublin to Dursey Island in Cork. It's so impressive, like, as in, just, I love that perspective on life. Yeah, I mean, you kind of just look at the options ahead of you. Like, like I'd rather be in Georgia or somewhere else now, but I mean, it's like, okay, I, I just took it month at a time almost, essentially, do you know what I mean? It's like, I, the last time I was talking to you, I was saying I might do the Wicklow Way. Yes. Uh, just because I was living in, I was living in Dublin. It's like, yeah, I like, it's just like a, like a seven-day hike or something like that. And then eventually, just because just those are borders, I was like, fuck. I'll just stay here in Ireland for another month. But I don't want to pay rent again for another month, so I'll just walk across Ireland. And say, I have my tent, free accommodation, pretty much. Uh, so instead of just doing a little away, I just extended that to do it coast to coast. Uh, and it's kind of, yeah, like, it's as if, like, you asked me back to start to it. Like, in December last year, I was starting, or November, whatever it was, uh, I started was starting a new job. And if you had asked me, what are you going to be doing this time next year? I'd say, no, I'm still doing that job. In that time, I've run for political office. Uh, <laughs> I lived in Dublin during the pandemic, walked across the country, and now I'm in Sicily. So it's like you just have to take it once at a time and see what see what you can do and look ahead and kind of sometimes you're open to possibilities and willing to kind of make that jump. You can there's still things to do, like Jeremy. Can I ask, like, when you're preparing and planning for like a through hiking expedition from coast to coast in Ireland? What goes in into, into the planning? Like, what, what are the things you have to get completely right before you even take that first step? It depends on the trail uh, and, like, where, when you're hiking, where you're hiking, that type of thing. Uh, like, obviously, if you're going hiking in fucking Alaska in the winter, you need to fucking plan a lot. But Ireland is pretty fine. It's like uh, the route itself, the E8 route, it's part of a... There's a... 12 European long distance paths all across Europe. And E8 goes from Jersey Island and West Cork all the way to Istanbul and Turkey. Goes what? the whole way across the continent. Yeah. There's, and there's, a whole, there's 12 of these tra- trails that literally crisscross the entire European continent. So I just did eat the Irish section of the E8 route. Uh, but the thing is, the fact that you just said, what? No one knows about these trails. No. There's so little information about them. Do you know what I mean? I don't even know <laughs> E1 to 7. Like. Yeah, exactly. So, Whereas, whereas like in America, the longest trail there, the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, uh, like they're super well known uh, to Americans at least, and like they're hiked all the time. So there's a lot of infrastructure in place and information in place. So like, uh, if you want to get a map, just go online, you'll find it in two seconds. You know what I mean? Whereas at E8, you have to, it's all there, but you have to kind of sift through all the bullshit trying to find it. You know what I mean? So what I originally did was uh, I downloaded the uh, KPL, whatever it's called, KMX file of the Irish section of the route, imported that into Google, then uh, into Google Maps, you know what I mean? So I had a map of the trail. Then I went along the trail, mapped all the towns, 
mapped possible places where I can go to shops, do you know what I mean? And uh, campsites, that kind of thing. But anyone who's done a long distance hike knows like you shouldn't really, you just need to know where to start and where to go. And then planning beyond that is kind of too much, do you know what I mean? Because once you're on the trail, uh, it all depends on how you're feeling that day. You have to listen, listen to your body, listen to your feet, uh, the weather, uh, and all, all other variables are going to it, do you know what I mean? Uh, one day, if you, the quickest way to fail a hike is to say, on day one, I'm going to go from A to B. On day two, I'm going to go to B to C. You don't do that. You just say, uh, day one, I start here and I'll walk until I get to the end. Do you know what I mean? And you just take it each day at a time. Uh, so you plan in terms of your gear. So you, like, you look at the average temperatures and potential rainfall. And Ireland isn't in summer, it's never, never too bad. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so you kind of gear yourself for that. Beyond that, you just have. Start off with a couple of liters of water and a few days worth of food in your bag and walk out your door, you know? When you were doing the hike, like let's say I'm familiar with Dursey Island. I did a little bit of camping down there in the middle of the summer and I was blown away by like the natural scenic beauty of the place. Were there any places along the way that you didn't think would blow you away, but you were like, what the fuck is this? This is in Ireland. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of places. Uh... This is the thing is I don't even know their fucking names. I just passed them. <laughs> like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. What you like? For example, like the Wicklow Way and Wicklow Way, Dublin and Wicklow Mountains, and the Bear Way, which is in the Bear Peninsula, and the Kerry Way, the Ring of Kerry, essentially. Like they're known to be beautiful. Like everyone knows all those spots. Do you know what I mean? Uh, they're, they're almost world renowned as trails and as uh, just for their natural scenic beauty. But there are places in between. Like I did like the South Leinster Way, down the East Munster Way, the Blackwater Way. And our places did that kind of connect the Wicklow Way to the Barrow Way, do you know what I mean? Those trails. Uh, and there are places that people like walking through Cavern or something like that. No one goes to fucking Cavern. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's, uh, so yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know the names of stuff, but I just passed it. Like this is fucking beautiful. And it's, it's interesting in a way because it's kind of the Catch 22 type thing. Whereas like the, the trails in Wicklow Way and Barrow Way, they have they have a better infrastructure in place, hiking infrastructure. I mean, not on par with say somewhere in America, but they're still they're, there's camp spots and hostels that type of thing, mm. and like the, the trail is well waymarked. Whereas the middle the sections that are least often hiked, the trail infrastructure isn't uh, the hiking infrastructure isn't there, and like there's there are some sections like remember coming out of Thurlis especially. Trellis? No, uh, calm down, sorry. Uh, I don't know, windows fucking place. Uh, so, like, like, you're literally walking through, the trail is uh, marked down, like, literally walls of thorn bushes. What? So, like, literally, like, an entire wall, and there's no way around it. You have to either plow through it or bushwhack around it, that type of thing. Whereas, like, you know, if you're in the Wicklow Way, the trail is so well-trodden that you never come across a, a spot that hasn't it's blocked off or something like that, you know what I mean? I get you. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that way, uh, just the sections, going to the sections of the island where no one, well, not no one, but very few people actually hike, you know what I mean? Uh, and, like, there's spots where, like, you're walking down some country lanes where it's like, they haven't seen a hiker here ever, do you know what I mean? So they're just bombing down the road. Whereas if you're in the bare way, they're taking your turn super slow because they're used to hikers on the side of the road, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, 
to explore these areas that um, aren't often explored comes with more risk and more danger because like, the most dangerous part of the trail is actually on the roads, I would say. Do you know what I mean? When the trail is just, it feels like someone in some office somewhere just said, okay, join this dot to that dot and let them walk down this road. They never <laughs> actually hiked that themselves. Where like you're walking down an S-curve road, an old country lane or something like that, and like if a car comes, you're dead. Like you know, there's, nothing, there's nothing you can do about it. It's crazy. So that's all you maybe you're like one or two percent of the actual trail, but it's like uh that can <laughs> you can end up dead literally. And it's well, so that's kind of the yeah, like those sections in between where again no one knows about them, but they have their own kind of uh rugged beauty where there there is they're not as grand as like the, the Whitlam Mountains or the Bear Away. Like you're literally going through the Midlands where it's pretty flat. Uh, kind of a lot of lot of road walking, a lot of forests, but they have their own, you know, special beauty as well. And as well, like if you're doing the Wicklow Way or the Kerry Way, and you've researched it, you've nearly seen photos of those kind of like landmarks in terms of beauty and spectacle. Whereas when you're just out there by yourself, there must be some sort of a nearly a special feeling when you're like, "Fuck it, I, I might be the only person who's appreciated this part of Ireland in the last couple of years," just because there's such yeah. solitude on the way as well. Especially with, so I was wild camping the whole way, so I was pitching my tent each night. And usually most nights I would camp in a forest. Uh, so I'd go off the trail. So a trail usually goes through forests, like in a couple of forests per day, you know, usually. So what I would do is I would like bushwhack into, into the trail, into the forest, say, uh, like, and walk down be five or 10 minutes, like kind of hidden from you. And it's like, you're walking through forests. He's like, you know, I'm the only motherfucker who's been here in fucking decades, like it feels like, yeah. Uh, and so you kind of find a little spot there where you can pitch your tent. And so yeah, there's it's kind of it's cool being like it's cool feeling like you're discovering something new and appreciating something new as opposed to something that's been on Instagram thousand times. You know what I mean? And um, I assume like most of your evenings and mornings were like fairly routine. Like what was the standard, like what time would you finish hiking? How did you set up your, your camp? Were there any challenges to that? Uh, so yeah, there's a general routine. Like you have, you have a routine of uh, you wake up in the morning. It's like the, there's the exact order you do things in really. So it's like you, I don't even have to, you don't have to, do this, which is what I do. And most long distance hikers, they kind of almost naturally fall into that uh, certain rhythm. So, like, yeah, you cook, you, you boil up your water if you're having some breakfast or if you're just having a bar, you eat that in the morning. Uh, then the worst thing you have to do is deflate your pad, your sleeping pad. There's a, you, get, you, you turn the nozzle and go, it's like, oh God, I'm stacked a day now. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're usually at this, at this point, you're, you're snug in your little sleeping bag, you're a quilt. Uh, so then, like, everything in my pack. It's always packed the exact same way each day. You know what I mean? So there's a certain way I pack up, uh, break. So it's like uh, I, I put all my electronics into a little ditty bag. Uh, I have a trash bag that goes inside my my main bag, and I stuff my quilt into that at the bottom. Uh, then I roll up my sleeping pad, put that towards the back so that I can give me some support against my the back back of the pad. I put my food bag in on top of that. Uh, then my ditty bag. Then I, uh, sorry. Then I, uh, then I put some some of my extra clothes into the, the trash bag as well. Then I roll that up. So that's like a self-contained little bubble at the bottom of my bag, so it's it's sealed from the water. Then I put my food bag on top of that, and then the sleeping pad on top of that. 
then maybe if I, depending on the forecast, I'll either put like my, I want to keep my fleece out, I'll put that on top. Look. Then I have the stuff on the outer side of my pack, uh, like my cooking gear and some snacks for the day. I have a little fanny pack where I use, put some water in there. And yeah, and all, like my water purification tablet or drops the bottom of my pack or bottom pocket of my pack so I can, I don't have to, I mean, throughout the day, I very rarely ever have to open my pack until I get to camp. Everything I need throughout the day when I'm hiking, the, the outer layers. And so I know exactly where everything is in my bag. And you can actually, if you, if you, if you hike long enough and doing the same thing, if you put on your bag and it's missing, you can feel it immediately. It's like, what, where am I, where are my tent stakes? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you, you, you know exactly where everything is and it kind of just comes apart of you. Uh, so in terms of the actual, so breaking camp in the morning, it was pretty much always the exact same. Uh, and then setting up camp, where, where I set up camp is generally the same as well. Uh, kind of almost like the reverse almost of breaking down camp um, but in terms of how long I hike depends on the day depends on the terrain depends on the forecast uh, depends on my feeling do you know what I mean um, and then uh, yeah so for example there's some days where I was planning hiking maybe 30 kilometers I only did 20 uh, and or like, see the problem with Ireland is because you get to wild camp everywhere. Uh, if you come across a spot that's good for wild camping, you're like, ooh, that's a good spot. I don't want to, like, it's kind of a gamble, okay? Do I, it's, it's four o'clock now. I could hike another two hours, but I might find a spot that's good as this. Yes. Uh, do you know what I mean? So it's kind of... You must be nearly always kind of sizing it up in your head. Yeah, so it's, like I'd say at minimum, I hike 20 kilometers per day. That's kind of just general rule, which is pretty easy, really. So four or five hours at most, like, like a gap, like a break in between. Um, some days more, so like the, the most I did was maybe 45 kilometers in one day. Uh, so kind of between 20 and 45 uh, is kind of the longest I've done, uh, like the, the average day. And then yeah, so kind of just a bunch of new factors that kind of play into, okay, when am I going to stop? It's, if it's, if you look at the forecast, it's going to start pissing rain at five o'clock, you'll stop at four. Uh, if you find a really good health spot and you look at the map for like the next, say, five or 10 kilometers ahead and you say, oh, there's actually, there's no forest ahead or it's all farmland or all roads for the next 10 kilometers, I might stop earlier just to pitch my tent there, you know, have a spot to stay. Uh, so kind of in terms of where setting up and breaking, uh, setting up camp and breaking down camp are kind of the same no matter where you are, but choosing when to stop is different each day. And like when people are listening to this, they're thinking, fuck me. He, he walked across the country. It took him what, like six weeks. But most people aren't factoring in the solitude, like doing this by yourself. Like what was, what was it like to, hmm. to be by yourself with your own thoughts for that period of time? Uh, I mean, so I think it was like five weeks in total, but a week of that I spent back home in Limerick. Uh, for my niece's christening and also remember that when our first storm hit there's a status red warning for cork so i was stuck in cork for like two or three days that day for, the, uh, for that section so it's like yeah it was pretty much like a, a month on trail itself like 30 days so, um but no firstly i'm generally uh, i think i said it before in the last part because i'm pretty good at being alone just in general uh uh but i mean yeah obviously you're out there by yourself but i mean you do meet people like do you know what i mean it's not as if you're out there like if you're somewhere like Alaska, you're going to be by yourself probably. But if you're in Ireland, you're people. You're meeting people 
other hikers who are walking the same way or walking the other way. Maybe they're like maybe they're just doing the Wicklow way as opposed to the whole thing. I met one other guy who was doing uh, the coast to coast. He was going the other way. He's going, <laughs> so I was going southbound. He's going northbound, and we met just out just before from Oi. Uh, That's gas. And yeah, we were just talking like he, he was telling me about the trail ahead for me, and I was telling him about the trail ahead for him. And like, you know, watch out for this section here, or you know, that's a good spot to camp there. And you know, talk about gear. So, like, just stopped on the side of the road for 10, 15 minutes having a chat. And then, yeah, you just, uh, I met a bunch of people working in the forestry service. So, like, people, they'd, they'd see me sitting on the side of uh, an old forestry trail, you know, airing at my feet, and they'd pull up in a tractor, go, hey, what's up? How you doing? What are you up to? And it's like, yeah, I'm just hiking across Ireland. That's, that's the biggest thing. Anytime I tell people, I'm hiking across Ireland, and their, their reaction was, "What? You can do that?" Because they've heard of people hiking like you know the Wicklow Way or the Bear the Bear Way, but to say I'm doing the whole thing, it's like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" They didn't even not even in their mind uh, that you could you could do that. I, I, the Wicklow Way, especially, I met, I met a bunch of people who were doing like they're in hiking clubs. You know what I mean, so you'd expect them to be kind of fairly uh, they're experienced hikers, and like you'd expect them to be well informed around hiking in Ireland. They didn't even know this trail existed. Like, you know, they didn't even know it wasn't in their mind. There's a thing you could do. They were, they were just hiking the Wicklow Way over and over again. It's like, no, walk the extra day that way, you fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> just, there's a whole other trail to go. Something the same trail over and over again. Uh, so, yeah, but I mean, you get, you get lonely, I suppose. But I mean, you're in the towns. See, Ireland is very, you literally pass in a town at most, say, three days. You know what I mean? Most days, it's like every one or two days, you're passing through a town. So it's not as if you're in absolute uh, solitude. Yeah. And you know, you have, I had covered pretty much like 99% of the trail. So I was like chatting friends and that kind of stuff on WhatsApp, that kind of stuff. So like you're sure you're by yourself, but you're not really alone. Do you know what I mean? It must be cool as well when you do run into somebody after a day of solitude because you actually appreciate human company rather than like when you're walking down a main street in Dublin. You're walking past hundreds of people. You're not going to stop and talk to any one of them because the fact that there's yeah, just exactly. so many, so many people, you just appreciate them less. Yeah, so it's like it's more potent almost. It's like it's concentrated. It's like a two second conversation is like, oh, it's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> hearing about you doing the coast, the coast hike, I thought it was really impressive, but what you were able to do through your videos on YouTube was really capture a sense of what that was like. And like watching those videos, it inspired me. I was like, fuck me. I have to do some sort of hiking next year. Like what a, what a fantastic way to spend your time, like to use your time. Um, can you talk me yeah. a little bit through like, when did you get interested in video editing or like, why did you start going down that route? So I, I created my YouTube channel just before I started the Appalachian Trail last year. Uh, the Appalachian Trail is a trail in the US, a uh, big long trail. I did uh, like 400 miles on that last year through uh, Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee. Um, so I, was, I kind of uploaded my, and I kind of, I've always, ever since I climbed Mount Fuji, I've been interested in hiking. Uh, but uh, what kind of, Got me more interested in the long distance uh, hiking kind of thing is watching other people's videos on, on YouTube. People do videos like what, what I was doing, you know what I mean? What, what I've done since. Uh, and so, kind of, it is a niche kind of uh, hobby, I guess. And so, it's kind of like making my videos is my little way of 
literally trying to inspire other people to do it. I think it's something that can be uh, beneficial for people. And it's kind of, it's my way of giving back to the kind of hiking community uh, to kind of inspire people to go hike. And because, see, it's interesting to, I've, I've known video editing, had to do video editing for, since college pretty much kind of, uh, we played around with there and different, different courses. Um, but the thing is when I was doing my Appalachian Trail videos, I put them together on the trail and edited on the trail using my phone, which is not video editing, do you know what I mean? So my videos for AT essentially became uh, just a, a sequence of sh uh, videos I shot at threat that week, say. So every, I start the trail and I get to a town, say a week later, and then I would just get all my videos, put them in a sequence, chop them up slightly so they're not crazy, uh, and then upload to YouTube and kind of just forget about it, do you know what I mean? So there were, it was technically video editing, but uh, you weren't, you were just kind of logging what happened that week. It's like, I went, I walked from mile zero to mile 100. Now it's on YouTube, 15 minute video, whatever. Yeah. Whereas with the Ireland video, uh, I decided I'm not going to edit on trail. I'm just going to uh, record as much as I want on trail. Uh, so there's no obligation. So that's another thing I found on the AT. Because you kind of knew, they're, oh shit, I have to post a video next week. There's kind of an obligation in your mind, even though you need like extra one or two percent, which like I said, I need to capture some video and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and so, uh, kind of, it takes you out a moment a bit more. Absolutely. After hiking, whereas if you're just, yeah. And so if you know, okay, uh, when I finish the hike, I'll sort through everything I've fi filmed and find a, find a video that way. You don't have to be precious about it, do you know what I mean? You can just record stuff and know you'll find it eventually, do you know what I mean? There's no, you, have to, you don't have to find it that day or that week, do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, so, I, uh, so I recorded uh, with the Irish hike. I just, uh, yeah, recorded everything as I felt on the day. Some days I didn't record anything. Some days I recorded a whole bunch of stuff, Joe, to get how I felt. Same way you listen to your body, you can listen to your mind. Some days you don't want to fucking to get your camera out and capture the landscape, do you know what I mean? Some days you just want to go hiking. Uh, and so... So then when I finished the hike and got all my, uh, all, all the clips together and it's kind of, I didn't want to, the AT videos and a lot of the hiking videos, I think in general, they're very functional. It's like, they're just capturing uh, the actual, I walk from A to B, whereas I wanted to kind of capture what I love about hiking and kind of just impact some way, in some capacity, the kind of, uh, the, the feeling I get when I look back upon a hike. Uh, so it's like, but the video you see, the, the realities of hiking a trail is like, there's some days where I had to dig a hole in a forest and shit in a hole in the forest because I had diarrhea. Like that's the, that's the reality of the trail. Do you know what I mean? That's on your Patreon, isn't it? <laughs> that's a special bonus video. Uh, so like the, there's the reality of the trail but there's moments on the trail where you come to the crest of a hill and you look up and you just feel fucking brim to full with just life and love and all that happiness and all that good shit. And kind of what I wanted to, and after, what I found is when you look back upon a hike, all the bad stuff just disappears. I mean, all the, you don't, like you, you, rec you, you remember having the diarrhea, having the fucking blisters, having all, all whatever else. But you, when you look back upon a hike, you, got, you, you only remember, you feel the good parts of it. So I kind of wanted to capture a bit of that in a video. 
and kind of and use that then to inspire other people to go hike, especially in Ireland, because that trail, no one hikes that trail. You know what I mean? So I kind of wanted to put some information out there and get people inspired for it. What I found as well, like there are certain things that you can enjoy in the moment because of their beauty, because you're you're in a good spot. But there's other more challenging things that you can look back in hindsight when you get past it because you're like, Jesus, I can't believe that that happened. And I'm still here. You know what I mean? Like there's definitely going type to be two, type moment. two fun. Man, that's it. Type, type two fun. So type one fun is fun in the moment. Type two is fun in retrospect. Hiking is type two fun. <laughs> Long distance hiking especially. When people hear this and they focus on the fact that, fuck me, he did coast to coast. If somebody was interested in trying to get into hiking, is there any specific route mm-hmm. in Ireland that you'd recommend, like for 2021? Yeah. Um, obviously, it depends on where you're living. If you're in Dublin, the Wicklow Way is on your doorstep, like Mary Park. Just get a, you can get a bus down there to Mary Park. That's the start of the Wicklow Way. And I'd say the first four days of the Wicklow Way, so like, I'd say maybe the first 80 kilometers, we'll say, you know, to one big days of the distance. Uh, kind of up to past Glenmalore, we'll say, from uh, that's like the best part of the Wicklow Way. After that, it's kind of a lot of road walking. It's kind of just a bit bland, whatever. Uh, so if you're just into hiking, just focus on the first four days, we'll say, first eight kilometers. And there's three huts along the way and a hostel in Knockree. So even if you didn't want to camp, you just want to hike, you could stay in that hostel. Then the next day there's a hut at Brusher Gap. Then the next day there's a hut at Mucklock. And then the next next day there's a hut at Mullacore. And these are just three wall uh, huts uh, uh, with like one open side and you can just uh, blow up your pad and put your sleep bed in there. Uh, I've been a video actually on my channel as well of literally everywhere I camped each night. And like with a Google map saying, here's a pinpoint where I camped. Because that's the biggest thing with Ireland because the camping laws are so restrictive. The biggest impediment of people going out hiking like long distance is they say, well, I can't, where, where do I stay each night? You know what I mean? And so I kind of put it all together. And for the week away, especially the four day section, uh, it's easy. And even if you don't want to stay in a hostel the first night, literally five minutes after that, that's where I stayed. Uh, on, there's a, a riverbank. Where like there's a uh, you can you can camp there easy and there's like a bunch of pre-established camp spots there as well. So if you're in Dublin, that's why I'd say you should start because uh, it's literally on your doorstep and it's probably one of the most beautiful parts of the trail itself. And for 2021 yourself, like, are there any ambitions in terms of what you'd like to hike if restrictions lift? Like, what what are your thoughts for next year? Mm-hmm. So this year I was meant to be hiking the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, which goes from the Mexican border to Canadian border in the US, uh, up to California, Oregon, and Washington. Uh, I had a permit for that, and obviously everything fell apart. Uh, so permits can be reissued for that in January, hopefully. Uh, so if I can get a permit for that, I will try and uh, do that again. Obviously it's all up in the air, uh, maybe starting in April or May. Uh, and so beyond that, like that's my you know, my plan, my official plan for uh, for now. Mm. But uh, there's a bunch of things I could do. Maybe uh, so in, even in Europe, the uh, GOR20 is a, a route that goes through the most difficult route in 
yeah, probably the most difficult route in Europe uh, goes uh, through Corsica, the island of Corsica. Uh, it's like a coast to coast of Corsica, and it goes very, uh, very mountainous. Uh, so I might do that. And in, in northern Sweden, there's a Kundsleden Trail, the King's Trail, uh, which takes about a month or two. I could do that. Um, I, I've hiked up there before, and it's ma- that's an amazing place, uh, northern Sweden. Um, so yeah, there's a bunch of trails in Europe I could do if I wanted to. Um, but all going well, and say things go back to normal, I'm going to try and do the PCT uh, next year. Um, before we started recording, you mentioned a little bit about the adopt a mountain program uh could you tell me a little bit about that i found that fascinating uh well it's not a program it's something i just invented two days ago fuck off <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh so yeah adoptamountain.com if you go there literally you'll see a landing page because uh, i'm building the thing at, at the moment um so literally uh while i've been here in in palermo uh, I've there's a little mountain called Mount Pellegrino. It's kind of within the city limits, and it's like I, right, I've walked up it maybe I don't know dozens of times, dozens of times now, and it's pretty small. It's only like six hundred meters, something like that. Uh, but it's trashed, like it's destroyed, because uh, Playmore in general there's rubbish everywhere. It's fucking a filthy city, man. <laughs> which I kind of like in some ways. I, I like, I like my city's dirty and my mountains clean. You know what I mean? Uh, but the mountains here is, uh, yeah, it was destroyed. So pretty much now, every time I go, I essentially have unofficially adopted this mountain in my mind, you know what I mean? So every time I hike it, I bring uh, rubbish bags with me, some gloves, and I pack up a bag or two or three of rubbish, I bring it back down the mountain. Uh, and yeah, and I made a little video about that as well on my YouTube channel. Um, and so kind of, I was thinking like, maybe I could build a kind of, uh, this thing called adoptmountain.com, where it's kind of, you can encourage people to go find a mountain and just like they, they can adopt it on a pitch site. You have a list of every mountain in the world, people adopt a mountain and something that they hike locally or something like that. Or I'm in Palermo now, I'm one here for a couple of months. There's a mountain nearby, I adopted it. And I'm gonna, every time I hike it, I bring a bag with me and take some rubber shopping, do you know what I mean? And so it's kind of like, it's a way of facilitating uh, stewardship of, mountains and world places across the world and it's kind of like you can, like obviously it's literally just a domain name at the moment i haven't built anything really uh but it's like if if in my mind you, you could be a way of kind of just right now it's all that i'm doing this by myself for this mountain but if there was a kind of social network of people who were, wanted to get involved in this and they, they could just type in put in their location and find an, an area of okay this area needs rubbish or this area needs was collected or if you're hiking a mountain and you see a spot that's trashed take a photo upload it to that page and next day next week someone can come along and clean it up you know what i mean uh it's kind of so it's just kind of way of uh getting information around uh spot uh hot spots that are of trash mountains essentially and kind of uh hopefully getting some people involved and cleaning it up but i was saying yeah so adopt a mountain it's just unofficial you just say okay i'm gonna adopt this mountain you know what i mean and work towards that in any way you can even if it's just one bag if you just do it for one day it's all good if, you, if you're doing what i'm doing like every time i hike, hike that mountain i take a, few, uh, a little bit off uh so there's no official rules to it and if i built it and the community grows we can see what happens but uh that's the idea behind it 
it's such a great idea man because like from the limited amount of hiking i've done there's nothing that spoils the natural beauty than just seeing just loads of rubbish and shite on your way because mm. it, it bothers you you know what i mean like it, it it takes away from that natural scenic beauty but it's also like these sort of roots kev the amount of condoms i've seen on this mountain <laughs> is ridiculous there's condoms all up and down the trail who is fucking on a mountain i don't get it <laughs> Like, there's mosquitoes baking sun why are you fucking on a mountain oh, I don't get it but so that's the thing that upset me the most like you could almost understand if someone has a can of coke and they throw it away but who fucks on a mountain not Pan Unan. no fuck that <laughs> um, do you feel as well there's nearly all almost a sense of like like there's so much things in this world at the moment that people do for themselves you know it's like it's like trying to build yourself up or or i love this doing like selfless volunteering it, it intrinsically just makes you feel better that you're actually just being a net positive rather than that fella who's fucking on that mountain uh yeah i get you but it's also the fact that a selfless act makes you feel good makes a selfless act selfish <laughs> you know what I mean? That is true. <laughs> is there a selfless act? So it's like I, I so I'm, I'm not concerned about that. I'm just saying it's like it feels good. It doesn't matter. It's good to do it, and you're doing good by doing good by by making yourself feel good. So it doesn't matter if it's selfless or not. Uh, it's you're. I hike the mountain, so it's kind of like I hike the mountain nearly every day. So it's kind of like I just add it to my routine. Do you know what I mean? And it's kind of it makes me feel better. Kind of actually gives me a bit of a more impetus to go hike the mountain, which is good for exercise. Uh, so it's like it's kind of a symbiotic relationship, you know what I mean? We've kind of veered into the realm of philosophy. I'm curious, like, what types of philosophy speak to you? Uh, the thing is, I wouldn't, I don't subscribe to one thing. I think if you, anyone who says I'm at ist is wrong, you know what I mean? Because it just, uh, you're, you're confi- you've confound you've confined yourself to one mode of thinking. Uh, so I kind of obviously we we study uh, an arts degree, so kind of you get a broad range of different perspectives. You kind of incorporate a lot of that into that into your thinking as I go along. Um, I think if I had to pick one kind of uh, kind of philosophy, uh, you kind of actually has practical uses to me in, in kind of everyday life would be kind of stoicism, kind of just. Uh, I have my sphere of control and I don't need to concern myself with things beyond that and kind of just work systematically through what I can control and what I want to achieve or that kind of stuff. Um, then obviously there's, there's fun. You can take, I like, I think a lot of philosophy kind of is good for a kind of almost thought experiment. Uh, just kind of a way, a way of, if you're looking at a problem, a way of looking at life, kind of just, okay, kind of a, like postmodernism or existentialism or whatever you want to say. Like, I just feel a lot of the, the Aspects of, but you can. It's fun to play around with the ideas. It's very uh, nebulous in that kind of respect. But uh, in terms of actual day to day practicality, stoicism is kind of one I would actually only really rely upon. You know what I mean? For me, I've only done like a limited amount of reading into stoicism. Like I use the Daily Stoic, and I've read some of like Ryan Holiday's books. Like what what type of uh, literature have you read in it, or how did you get the information? I don't even know. Uh, just 
so again, a bunch of stuff in, in the the art degree. Then I, I like Carl Jung. Like I studied it for my master's. Uh, I did uh, my thesis on dreams. I studied Carl Jung a lot, and I don't know if you'd be defined as a stoic, but uh, a lot of his stuff is uh, interesting. Jordan Peterson is interesting. I mean, actually, most of kind of modern philosophy is probably, I say modern, I mean, philosophy I kind of engage with after college. It's been on YouTube stuff, more like lectures or like Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, uh, those, those type of people. I kind of listen, listen to them uh, talking to big ideas. And then obviously, you go back to the, the classics like Marcus Aurelius and you know, they're, they're just like, he is the OG Stoic, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned there that you did a, a thesis in Dreams or a Master's in Dreams? Uh, so, yeah, I did a Master's in Marketing and Consumption Society. Uh, and for my thesis, I wasn't interested, I focused on dreams. So it's kind of uh, the symbolic nature of consumption within dreams. Uh, so that's my thesis. Uh, so it's kind of uh, so I, essentially I kept a dream journal for a couple of months and looked for ways of what I consumed in my daily life manifest themselves in my dreams at night uh, and the masses of bullshit like do you know what I mean the, the <laughs> market consumption society what a fucking good wank but uh, so, so so essentially like what the, this masses was designed was to kind of get half business students half art students and get them in the room and kind of get them to mingle. And most business students, they don't have a creative bone in their body. Like, it just, they just can't think. So stop. They're very bad numbers. Yeah, well, they're very bad numbers. Which one? I'm not, I'm just talking shit for the sake of talking shit. But you mean, uh, like, I think Ask Threes, even if you're don't fully engage it if you apply to do it you kind of have that open mind where you're kind of uh you're open to different ideas and playing playing with stuff whereas if you apply to a business degree you're kind of just down a straight and narrow almost you mean and whatever people change i and i kind of there being that the world needs everything you, you don't want everyone to just have to be open mind to be crazy open mind people or 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 to everyone to be just be by the book you need to put everything you need you need attention between those aspects. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, yeah. So it's kind of playing with the. What's I saying? In the masters, then yeah, so it's kind of that was kind of the background of the masters, um, and I was using that as the way to kind of just using the dreams as the way to kind of just tear the some kind of the. The academic side of the marketing stuff, I, I don't know, in my mind, kind of fairly flimsy. And so, like, I kind of played the lecturers in a sense. I knew they would eat this shit up. Do you know what I mean? And <laughs> so it's like, I could I could do a, a case study on BMW or something, or I can just have fun and create something and explore something that's interesting to me at the time. And so uh, I've always been a kind of a... You know, like a super heavy dreamer, I don't know what you want to call it. Like I also like remember really detailed uh, aspects of my dreams. Uh, and so I got a dictaphone and uh, every day when I wake up, I just mumbling blah, 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 blah into the dictaphone. Then I transcribed that. And then I did that for a few months. And yeah, and then I kind of look for themes and patterns uh, in that. And then I applied some of the marketing 
do that. And what I really, uh, I mean, I used, I, I mostly use Carl Jung as a kind of the bedrock of that, as a, from a psychological point of view. I can see something, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Carl Jung at all. I, I'm familiar with the name, but it's something that I haven't read into. Like, what, what are his thoughts? Like, what, what's his ideas? Yeah. So, so he is, he's best known for kind of the concept of archetypes. So, uh, so he's saying that there are archetypes that are present almost biologically almost in humans uh, that tra- tra- transcend culture and time, but and, and we imbue them with meaning given our own culture, our own specific culture and time. So, for example, one uh, one archetype could be uh, the loving mother. One could be the wise old man. And he said, if you look through history uh, and mythology and religion throughout history, you'll see these archetypes appear over and over and over again. And so there are these core uh, concepts that he thinks are innately human. And we just imbue them, each culture imbues them with a different name, a different uh, personification, whatever you want to mean. And, and applying that then to our dreams, we kind of do the same thing. We kind of there's archetypes that appear in our dreams and we imbue them with meaning, meaning each night. Uh, and so I kind of, I put on, uh, uh, yeah, hero, uh, kind of hero and masculinity was kind of one, uh, the, the aspect of my, uh, kind of main focus of my thesis. Because uh, like one, one, I did, so my thesis broke into two sections. Uh, so yeah, the, First kind of core aspect of the dreams was uh, a rugby dream I had. Uh, it's been a while since I've thought about this now, so I don't know ex- the exact details, but it was um, we were playing a game of rugby in St. Paul's Primary School. And remember in uh, St. Paul's Primary School, the, there was three yards, like the juniors' yards, middle yards, and seniors' yards. Mm-hmm. And we're playing a, a game of rugby in the first yard, uh, and we're going to score a try. We're like, we're in a huddle. And Paul O'Connell and uh, Ryan O'Driscoll are there. This is back in the day when they were still in the team, you know what I mean? They were both Irish captains at the time. Uh, and I was saying, like, uh, they wanted to, they're like calling the player sometimes, like they want to hand me the ball. I said, no, I can't do it, I can't do it. Uh, and then, I can't remember exactly now, but then we, yeah, we're, we're running the move and they throw me the ball and I run towards the try line. And the ball is simultaneously the rugby ball and also uh, an eraser, rubber. Uh, and as I, as I touch the line, the line disappears. Then, Jesus, it's been so long since I talked this shit. Uh, <laughs> then I'm in uh, like a changing room uh, crying, and I rub my tears on my t shirt, and that turns into a jersey. And then I run out onto, I'd like to down the, car, the, the corridor onto a big giant stadium pitch, do you know what I mean? And then we score a try or something. I can't remember exactly. Something like that. And and then the other aspect of the dream was the other side of the dreams looking at was uh, a bunch of post-apocalyptic scenarios I had, uh, like like a zombie apocalypse, uh, that kind of stuff, or a nuclear holocaust. And I hold, I like over the six-month period, I had maybe like five or six dreams around this that like, you could tie back this kind of uh, apocalypse theme, and I kind of I related that back to so I related the rugby team, the rugby dream back to kind of how I. Uh, that time was just getting to rugby and that became like a manifestation of my personal masculinity and then uh, the 
post-apocalyptic dreams, I tie back to my media consumption because at the time I was consuming a whole bunch of post-apocalyptic zombie shit. Uh, and so I kind of, I just played on these scenes and uh, tied it back to how I, what I consumed in my everyday life manifests itself in my dreams and then using the archetypes to kind of play around with the, how I could imbue the archetypes with meaning. Uh, uh, so that Paul O'Connell and Brian Driscoll would be the wise old men or the father figure or something, something like that, you know what I mean? Uh, and then the, the zombie, the zombie apocalypse, you, you have the hero, you have the villain and all that kind of stuff. So I literally transcribe all the, the dreams in proper detail and then kind of map it back to what I consumed in everyday, everyday life. And I kind of, yeah, I kind of, I kind of performed into kind of like a narrative almost. It's only, it's only like a, I don't know, 10,000 word essay. It's not too bad, like not too crazy, uh, like not too uh, intense. It's not like a PhD, you know what I mean? Um, so I kind of, uh, yeah, I used the kind of uh, a, a metaphor. So of my, my grandfather he used to make jigsaw puzzles. Uh, so he had an entire room with me for jigsaws. And what he used to do was he used to get my nana to buy the jigsaws and throw away the cover. So he'd never know what the jigsaw was. He had like a 10,000 piece jigsaw and he'd slowly uncover what the actual image was. And I kind of used that uh, a metaphor kind of as a way to talk about dreams and kind of like, even though when he finishes his jigsaw and he has a full image and it all makes sense to him, he can never say with 100% confidence that's exactly what was on the cover of the box. You know what I mean? Because uh, there's that's why I, I don't know. It's all very wankery pseudo intellectual no, bullshit. No, I that's think this I is fascinating. Uh, so yeah, that's why I was playing around with my like, my thesis, um, and it was fun. That's things like I was a bunch of people in my masters. They were focusing on just things that would look good in the CV, almost. You know what I mean? Just like uh, super businessy, super markety shit. And I guarantee you, none of them have been asked about their thesis in a job interview. Every job interview I've had, it's just like dreams. What the fuck is that? They ask, they ask me a question all the time. Uh, so it's like it actually it is something that stands out on my on my CV, which is, and it was enjoyable to do. Which is why why do anything besides that? Do you know what I mean? Would you still find real significance in your dreams? Like this year, has there been any themes that that have ran throughout your your slumber? I don't, I don't record like uh, track my dreams over time anymore. I always remember my dreams, pretty much always anyway. Um, but I don't, I didn't do what I did there, where I like every day religiously recorded everything and then then went back over everything and looked for themes and patterns. Uh, it could be interesting to do that, uh, but I just could be bothered to be honest. Uh, what I'm really getting interested in. So now it's uh, lucid dreaming. You've heard of lucid dreaming? Man, I was just about to ask you about that. Like, I'm somebody who <laughs> rarely remembers dreams. And so lucid dreaming is like on that other fucking platform where you nearly enter the matrix. Like, uh, I, yeah, I've, I've had lucid dreams, plenty of lucid dreams before. Uh, I think, yeah, it's kind of the, the first step of having a lucid dream is having proper recall and kind of, uh, so there's a bunch of techniques you can use to have lucid dreams. Um, I could get into that or I can just talk about lucid dreams in general. I don't know. It's like the first time you have a lucid dream, I don't care who you are, you're having an orgy. You're fucking everything inside. <laughs> I don't give a fuck who you are. Uh, on, the, but, on the side of Mount uh, Pellegrino. <laughs> absolutely. No condoms, man. No condoms. <laughs> you need a condom in a dream. What the fuck? 
but eventually, uh, yeah, you get past that. Like the first couple of times, you're like, what? I'm in a, a sandbox where I can do everything with no repercussions. Bring me all the women right now. But then eventually you get beyond this, like get beyond that and you kind of, you can explore different things. Uh, you can fly around and just, or you can, you're almost like Dr. Manhattan, you're like Dr. Man- Dr. Manhattan and Watchmen, where he's on Mars just creating a cathedral or something like that. It's like, like that or Inception, Joe, where you're just doing things. It feels like that almost. Um, but it's very, there are some people who are like massively into lucid dreaming. Why we only, and they, when they're in lucid dream, they have like full control. And they, whereas I, when I'm, when I'm there, it always feels like it's slipping away, like it's out of grasp. I can control it, but it's like, I know I'm going to be yanked out of it in a second. You know what I mean? I'm going to, it feels like it's very, I have to, almost have to rush to get to do what I want to do. Uh, but over time, the more, you, the more often you use the dream, uh, the more control you have and the more, uh, yeah, the more enjoyable it can be. What sort of steps can you take to even try and start grasping the idea of like a lucid dream uh so the best one simplest one is to literally do a dream journal so every time you have a dream write it down uh that is the best one uh and because that will over time no matter who you are uh that will increase your dream recall that the more you'll be able to recall dreams more uh frequently and vividly over time uh obviously some people i think depends on where you're like i think i would just naturally I have a good recall over have above average recall, we'll say, do you know what I mean? So if you're a below average recall, it might take you longer to get there. But that, that's the simplest one you can do. Then what also people do, what it's called a reality check. There's n- numerous ways you can do this. So the probably most famous one is to have a watch, uh, an analog watch, or sorry, with the yeah, with the hands. And so throughout the day, you look at your watch and you see it's a second hand moving as expected. Mm. And if it is okay, you go okay. I'm in reality. So it's I this is real life. You do that numerous times throughout the day until it becomes a habit. Then when you're in a dream, you will almost by, by habit look at your watch. And in a dream, things like that won't move the same way. Uh, so they'll uh, a second a second hand won't click like a second hand. It'll be all over the place. You know what I mean? If you ever ever try to read something in a dream. It's no, possible. Like, like, man, I'm, the, the, I'm thinking, like, I, I fucking, like, the, yeah. the only time that I, <laughs> I think that I remember dreams is, like, if I if I wake up before I have to get up and I have, like, an hour and a half yeah, and yeah. I fall back into that kind of light sleep, that's when I think I have dreams. But for, for me, they're, they're so fleeting. That's another technique. A technique I won't ever do because I think it's ridiculous. But you can, if you interrupt at a certain point in your sleep cycle and then go back to sleep, you will massively increase your uh, aspect of having a lucid dream or have better recall. Uh, I can't remember the exact, I think it's, yeah, I think it's maybe it's in REM sleep at some point. If you interrupt in REM sleep and go back to sleep, you're more likely to recall it, more likely to have a lucid dream. Don't quote me on that. It's something like that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so lot, what some people who are really lucid dreaming is they will wake up throughout the night, like force themselves to wake up and then go back to sleep. It's like, I'm not going to force myself to wake up. I'm going to sleep like a normal person. Uh, but yeah, if you, uh, so there's things like, uh, yeah, so you, besides going to that extreme where you're kind of, where your dreams are impacting your real life, suppose you're impacting your dreams. I don't want to go that far, do you know what I mean? Uh, but if you do the reality checks and also just telltale signs in dreams. So the biggest one is reading something. If you read something in a dream, the words will just dance around the page. You can't 
to read the for whatever reason the, there's a the aspect of your brain used for reading doesn't function in a dream so uh you can't actually read anything in a dream and and thing is things are weird like that because you can i had dreams where i felt like i've read something but that's more uh, you you just you infer the meaning because you're in a dream as opposed to you've actually read something and got the meaning from it like in real life and then there's things like uh what people do is they squeeze their hands squeeze their fists and that kind of doing that feels weird in a dream that can that can alert you to whether you're in a dream or not uh and yeah lo- looking at a watch or a clock is probably the most best one that's so crazy yeah yeah so I'm, I'm not into it that much but i kind of just naturally kind of had lucid dreams uh so there's there's people who are who, who know way more stuff about that but uh it's interesting and it's fun to have lucid dreams about. how often would you experience this would it be once a month yeah you know, it's, it's it's weird i would say it actually comes more in frequencies like i wouldn't say i'd have one one every month but i'd say i'd have at least 12 years you know what i mean so there might be periods of regularity yeah yeah so it's like it's, there could be one or two months where, for whatever reason, uh, I just have more vivid dreams or whatever. Maybe I'm just getting better sleep. Who knows? Do you know what I mean? Uh, so it depends. Yeah, I wouldn't. I could go six months without having one, and then I could go two months and have ten. Do you know what I mean? So it depends. It must have been bizarre listening back to your recordings for like that period of time. Like, were there any bizarre ones where you're just like, "Must crush capitalism"? You're like. Oh, <laughs> Oh, there's some crazy ones. Uh, she's like, it's been, the thing was, the funny thing was, cause you record, I record them just as I woke up. And you only wake up, you're like, you're like blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So literally, well, I wouldn't actually outline the, the full dream. I would just say a few key words or a few, a few key concepts. And then when I'm listening at, back to that, then I'm, oh yeah, I know what that is. Like, then I would, uh, then I would actually write out in a kind of narrative, uh, like in a proper, like, uh, like a little story almost, you know what I mean? Uh, see, I've listened to the record. It's just like, oh, I was walking in the mall. Uh, <laughs> I saw something. It's just literally just like that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Just pure gibberish. But uh, yeah, I, I had it written down. I had it written down somewhere. I can send them to you if you want. <laughs> Fucking hell, man. I, I actually might try to start doing that because it's one of those things I'm always wondering, do I not dream or do I just not put any Every- focus or attention on my dreams so I'd never remember them? Yeah. Everyone dreams. Yeah. You have to. Uh, like I'm sure if they if they put you in like a brain scan or whatever while you sleep, all the areas will light up like you're dreaming. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And isn't it something like is it your prefrontal cortex kind of the activity there drops down significantly? So it's nearly like the the asylum is loose. You know what I mean? It's like the rest of your brain <laughs> yeah, yeah. go a little bit mental because the rational part of your brain yeah. isn't necessarily in charge. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. I don't know the full physiological aspect. I mean, no one really does. That's that's the kind of the crazy thing about dreams. There's still this weird. Literally, every human in the world has dreams every night, and we don't. Know what the fuck's going on? Like, we still don't know. That's crazy. Like, yeah, we we think we're like this so so far advanced in civilization, that kind of stuff. But there's this core aspect that every dream, every human has been doing since humanity has existed, and we don't know what's going on. <laughs> you know what I mean, we have an idea. We have theories. But it's still, I think it's like, if you ever want to like go towards like solving what is consciousness, whatever, like if solving like why, why do we dream empirically, that's like a stepping stone to get there, I would say. Um, 
just thinking back as well i remember like i there was a period of time where i was trying to make myself dream more or at least you know re- recall my dreams mm. i started taking a supplement called acetylcholine and that actually did have some sort of a weird mm-hmm. effect like, i don't know the, like why it did but i remember reading that if yeah, you yeah. wanted to start like lucid dreaming or at least maybe better recall of your dreams acetylcholine was something yeah. that people were talking about on there, is, there are some supplements I think there's actually even lucid dreaming supplements. I am taking them, but I did, I did try uh, to kind of make my own concoction before. So certain, I think it's like vitamin B12. Uh, so, so yeah, and there's certain yeah certain foods that you can eat. Maybe they they say induce better dreaming, better lucid dreaming, but I don't know. Uh, I don't think there's been much research into it, Jimmy. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't go experimenting on myself too much. <laughs> um, Pat, before we finish up. I'll fire you a couple of, couple of quotes. I'm a, I'm a fan of quotes. Um, Love it. Go for what, it. Do you, what do you think of this one? This is by uh, Thucydides. The society that separates its scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting by fools. I mean, Ireland's neutral. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I know, I, yeah, I think... There is a tendency to kind of want to. So I said before, like we, we need all aspects. We, we need the crazy open mind people. We need the dour by the book people. We need the whole. Uh, you ca- you can't have one society that's just one that one thing built on one thing entirely. Will just inevitably fall apart. We need as I said, that tension. And yeah, if over time things silo and silo and silo into our, and get further and further apart. Yeah, it's it's not gonna be good for anyone, uh, and I would imagine the dumb soldiers will win very easily. <laughs> That's interesting because, like, when I was reading that, I applied it much more to the self because, like, there nearly always seems to be talk of like, like, let's say you're you're either this incredible intellectual guy and you don't enjoy physical yeah, pursuits, yeah. or you're you're this meathead who can't think rationally or mm. intellectually, and it's like nearly that balance is key. Like, do you know when people say like, oh, look after yeah. your mental health? Like, that. just talking about mental health and not acknowledging that physical health plays such a part yeah. in mental health and vice versa. Obesity impacts your mental health. Exactly. I mean? exactly. Like, that's kind of... I mean, it's a, you, you can't... I, I was like, I would say like when I was growing up, I would have been maybe like a teenager in college, I would have been fall into the kind of the intellectual kind of camp. But that's kind of why I love hiking now. It's like I've, there is a great joy in doing something with your body. Do you know what I mean? Just going out and doing something. Uh, and I think hiking is kind of perfect for anyone who's kind of uh, introverted or cerebral, we'll say, because you're doing something active, but you can still think and uh, enjoy nature. And, that kind of stuff. and there's been numerous studies to show, like going out into nature, just actually, not even for the exercise, but actually just being in nature is good for humanity, just good for humans. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I totally get that. Find that to the individuals, uh, interesting. Yeah, to have kind of a well-rounded uh, approach to life, and not just not just be in the ivory tower, and not just be in, in the mind toiling away. You need a bit of everything uh, to, to truly enjoy yourself. There must have been something for you as well. Like, let's say uh, I've done like week-long hikes, and you've mm-hmm. done you've done like that on a magnitude. But like, there's something so nearly relaxing and enjoyable when you've walked for the day there's there's none of that fucking 
anxious chatter in your head. You don't have the yeah, yeah. the mental energy for your default mode network to be going haywire about sure. about the future, about the past. Like it, just that bit of physical activity, and especially in nature, it just seems to calm the chatter down. That's what I found like. Yeah. So I was actually talking to McHugh uh, recently on Facebook. He was asking me like, "Why do you hike? Why are you so into hiking?" And there are a whole myriad of things, lot of things I love about hiking. You just like nerding out about the gear. But I distill it down to like this core aspect. And I said, it's like clarity of purpose. That's what I like about hiking. If hiking is no bullshit. You walk from A to B and try not to die along the way. That's it. Whereas if you're, and if you kind of opt into those rules of that game, that's all you need to worry about. You know what I mean? Whereas if you're in everyday life, uh, you sit back, look at the world. It's like there's a thousand million things I could be doing right now. Which direction do I go in? I want to write a book, make a film, start a business. Where do I go? What do I do? Uh, there's too much options. You know what I mean? Uh, and so, so yeah, I think having a clarity of purpose is what kind of uh, draws me into hiking, uh, even if it's just temporarily, I and mean, even it's kind of uh, somewhat knowingly. You're putting everything else on the background almost. It's fine. It's just, but, but in that moment, because your feet are sore, you're hungry, it's wet, it's cold, you don't give a fuck about the background. You're just focused on what's in front of you. Do you know what I mean? And, you, and because you've opted into the, the rules of that game, the rules of I'm going to hike from A to B and not die along the way, then everything else just disappears. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's class, man. Um, one last one for you. So uh, this is by Mark Twain. Censorship is telling a man he can't have a steak just because a baby can't chew it. So, yeah, I think this is a big problem these days with online discourse and that kind of stuff. I'm a big proponent of uh, freedom of speech. Uh, and to the point where I'd err on the side of let it out as opposed to uh, curtail it in any capacity. And like, the biggest thing I'm worried about now is, like, remember, I just saw recently an article there um, do you know Proud Boys in the US that kind of their white nationalist uh, group whatever yeah uh, so they have a website that's hosted on some uh, server do you know what I mean mm-hmm. uh, some, some company that run the server and that company decided to take down their website because they're white nationalists and you can you can appreciate that but then from a freedom, a freedom of speech point of view who made this business uh, the arbiter of truth, you know what I mean? And, okay, and the, the argument for freedom of speech is, okay, you have to allow the worst speech to protect the good speech. Because yeah. as soon as you cancel the bad speech, then it's just one incremental step over until something not as bad, but still bad, and one incremental, then 10 years down the line, they're banning you and what you're saying because you're talking about fucking someone in a dream or something, you know? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and so it's like you have to allow all speech and obviously there's the only limitations they, they would say is like if you're making a direct threat of violence against someone and that could have or like doxing something like that where what you're saying has uh, permanent real real life imp- impact on someone's natural life and, and safety but in my opinion anything up to that free game and Google and Facebook and all the like even Patreon, for example, they stopped uh, processing payments of people or PayPal, people whose speech they disagree with. Because, again, who made you the, the arbiter, the, the decider of this? 
And so I kind of think these, it's weird because we solved this with newspapers back in the day. And now we're kind of, people seem to forget entirely when it comes to new media and that kind of stuff. It's like, no, it's it's the same thing. It's just a different medium. Uh, so I would say like the Facebook and Google and YouTube, wherever else, uh, Twitter, they just, they need to be kind of marked, marked as uh, public service or whatever you want to say, public utility and freedom of speech protected within that. Um, and looking at the trends, it's not going that way. And over time, Look at China, come on. Like, like what they're doing in China is could easily, the technology is there like to replicate that immediately. The only thing stopping it is just the laws in place. And currently the, the Facebook's and Google's actions are currently now dictated by public relations as opposed to like philosophical conscious thought. And that's no way to run kind of a, such a broad, how our public discourse is run just by public opinion, so literally mob rule. Yeah, like, what I've always thought about freedom of speech, like, the best way to combat bad speech is better speech. Like, the only way to mm. stifle bad ideas is nearly to hear them out and promote better ideas. Yeah. Uh, whenever I think of free speech, I, I'm always reminded of Patrice O'Neill. Uh, do you know the, that... That segment you had on was it Fox News. Yeah, I think it was Fox News, where he's protecting or talking. So Opie and Anthony, the radio show he used to go on a lot. They were banned for, I think, yeah, they they had a homeless guest on their show who threatened to kill the vice president or something like that. Condoleezza and they were banned for a week. Yeah, so yeah, and yeah, and Patrice was on defending him, and he was arguing against his. Uh, she was some activist. I can't remember exactly what she was doing. Sonia Sarri, but. Uh, yeah, that was it. And yeah, his defense of uh, freedom of speech was one of the best that I think I've ever heard. He's like, he's talking in the context of funny. And he's just like, I know funny, you don't know funny. And what he said, I think was very true. I think it's just kind of probably beyond funny, but it's especially true for stuff that is funny. It's like, you don't know if anything's funny until it, you said it or not. And he's not defending what's said. He's defending the right to say it. Yeah, like it's you know what I mean. That funny and unfunny—they come from the same place. Like you've no idea till you, till you, like same birth. Like to, yeah, exactly. It's like to make somebody laugh, you have to risk offending them. Like there's that fine exactly, line, yeah. and it's amazing today that, like, nearly offending people is at the top of the pile. Like people, like risking offense—it's bizarre because, like, yeah, everybody has their own thing that they're sensitive about, and that's what offends them yep. like the things that offend me and the things that offend you are different because we've different life experiences but it's amazing that yeah. you can hear 10 jokes and one of them hits home for you and you're like oh that's not funny because i have like somebody who's affected by that or that personally affects me and that's the thing that i choose yeah. to be offended about i mean while you're laughing at a holocaust joke exactly you know I mean? it's, <laughs> it's like either have no sense of humor or or just accept the fact that you you will be offended occasionally. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's fine. I think it's it's actually I kind of enjoy being offended. I don't know some mixed Irish joke or something like that. Kind of fun to kind of uh, almost watch your reaction. Yeah. yeah. I kind of just go yeah, I'm good. and then go oh, I'm good fuck. If it's <laughs> naturally, if it is funny though, like there's there's a difference between somebody saying something and you're like, oh, you actually said like 
that was nearly an act of aggression rather than if somebody makes a fucking hilarious Irish joke and it's just it's yeah. brilliant. It's it's amazing. Like. I don't know. I yeah, I will, I will defend an unfunny attempt as well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because like yeah, because uh, exactly that's what she's saying. It doesn't matter. He was saying you have to defend the attempt to try to be funny. I'm saying if the person is just trying to be mean, the context matters. You know what I mean? If they're saying something to just get on your skin or whatever, then you can look at it a different way. But if they're trying to be funny, and even if they succeed or don't succeed, it's, it's the same thing. It's crazy as well in this clickbaity time where you'll read a heading, and like it happens to me as well. I'll be like, I'll read a head, like some sort of a quote from somebody that I might know, like that I that I've seen their work before, and I'm like, geez, did they really say that? And like the heading will nearly catch you off guard because you you'll never think of the context. But when you read something in print, and there's no context around why they said that, what was the question before that? Where did they say it? Like, was it on stage? Was it in a funny interview? Was it in a podcast? The context, context matters. And also the context that you're, someone wrote that article. They have their own perspective. They, they have an intention behind why they wrote that article. So like, I'm, I'm never going to be offended by proxy, do you know what I mean? By, by, by middleman. If you say something, or being said something, and I listen to it, I'm offended, but I'll be offended by that. But if I hear tangentially that someone said something true to someone else, I'm not going to be offended by that because unless I, I, I go to the original source, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And if I, if I watch the original source and I go, oh, shit, that's pretty bad. <laughs> and I go, oh, yeah, maybe they're, they're bad, but I'm not going to trust the article because in this day and age, you can't trust shit. That's so true, man. Like, it, it always annoys me a little bit when you're told what to be offended about. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like people will come up to you and they'll be like, oh, did you see this thing? And rarely has somebody actually looked into it and thought about it. It's just like the default response is, oh, this is bad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of this Twitter retro signaling mob rule type thing where people go around in hordes trying to cancel people. Uh, I don't know. Some, I think anyone who's involved in that kind of like if you're on Twitter all day every day, it's kind of like you need to do something else. It's like it's just, I I have Twitter, but I don't have it on my phone. I go on on my laptop sometimes, but I think Twitter especially is a cesspool of that kind of shit. Yeah, I've never engaged with it, but I keep hearing that it's just one of those places that my God, yeah. if you want so to I, be I, reactive, I, 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 I had a, I had an account set up years ago. I barely used it, but then when I was running in the election, Twitter was actually a good resource. So I kind of got more involved in it then. But uh, then over the past month, kind of just recently, I went into everyone I was following. I think I was following like 800 people. And I unfollowed like 700 of them. So I know when you follow like 100 people. Uh, and I've, like I said, I very rarely go on it. And I don't interact with that much. Uh, but yeah, for whatever reason, the hashtag kind of just brings people together around a kind of arbitrary rule, an arbitrary kind of idea. And people just jump on it, you know what I mean? So, so because it's so reactionary, uh, Twitter gets ahead of the reality of the story very quickly. So if someone, some journalist writes a story saying, I don't know, some comedian said something offensive, that's that arguably posted and it'll be shared on Twitter and immediately there'll be a hashtag, people jumping on it before they even know what the reality of it is, before the original source is online even, do you know what I mean? Uh, and so I think Twitter just, for whatever reason, lends itself very, very efficiently to that kind of... Uh, uh, what's the word virtual signaling it's interesting with Twitter as well that it's a small minority of people that are making 
the mm. majority of the comments and then people look at like twitter as nearly a real yeah a, rep- a representation of the population exactly as well. the biggest problem with twitter is every journalist in the world pretty much is on twitter do you know what I mean? So that's where they comb Twitter for to get article ideas or news. Do you know what I mean? And then and then they write for their platforms or their, their YouTube, or whatever. And and then uh, then that that's filters out across the internet over time. So people share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter. They share those articles. Do you know what I mean? And so like the Twitter becomes kind of the central hub of these ideas very quickly, uh, because there's so much journalists and content writers on Twitter, uh, and that's where they're getting their source ideas from. Pat, I'm real conscious of time here. Uh, we should probably finish up soon. I'm sure you have shit cool. to do. But uh, Pat, thank you so much for your time. And uh, if people are curious to find out more, where can they follow along? Uh, if you want to watch some of the videos I was talking about, just go on YouTube and type in Patrick Noonan and I should come up for that. Um, if you want to go to adoptamountain.com, there'll be an email list. And if you're interested in the idea, just sign up for that and whatever something that you built, you can actually, I'll send out an email blast and you can play around with it then. And on Instagram, I don't know, Patrick Noonan 89. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Sweet, man. As always, man, pleasure Cheers. catching up and uh, I hope you enjoy that Sicilian winter. Can we get that vitamin D, man? <laughs> Peace. <laughs>